All right, ready to get into James? Yeah, James is a great book. James is a great book, not so much loved by scholars. Um, Martin Luther, the great Protestant uh, reformer, uh, referred to it as the gospel of straw. Uh, he thought that it, it was weak on, uh, on justification by faith, which was his big thing, right, as he uh, forged ahead with the Protestant Reformation. Other scholars that I was reading this past week kind of get frustrated by James because he, uh, he doesn't have like a nice linear logical thought um, process like maybe the Apostle Paul does. He's random as, like he's jumping all over the place, which makes it more difficult for me as well. So I kind of got irritated by that. But um, they also kind of don't get so much into James because he, he lacks a lot of the meaty, theological, doctrinal stuff that Paul's into. So he doesn't talk about Jesus' death. He doesn't talk about salvation. Um, he doesn't talk about some of these big matters of um, faith and grace. And so um, scholars don't get into him so much. But average people... Ordinary people like you and me love James because James is intensely practical. He writes in this style which is a bit like the Old Testament wisdom literature, a bit like the Proverbs. It's very practical. It's very direct. He has more imperatives or more frequency of imperatives than any other New Testament book. An imperative is just, you know, do this, don't do this. Get straight to the point. He's also very poetic with his language. He has rich imagery. He doesn't just tell you something in the abstract. He tells you something and then he says, and that's like this. The tongue is like a spark that starts a fire, right? He has this beautiful imagery right throughout the book. And so people like you and me love James. It's one of the most quoted books uh, among average everyday Christians like you and me. And so I'm excited to get into this, but I'm also the moron who decided to try and cover it in five weeks. Um, five weeks, five chapters, kind of made sense at the time, but because James is a little bit random, because his style is more conversational than pedagogical, it means that covering one chapter of James is like trying to preach five sermons. So... You guys excited about listening to five sermons this morning? I'm going to attempt to, to get through all of this chapter this morning. We're going to do what we do and just work our way a couple of verses at a time. So if you've got a Bible with you, make sure you've got that open to James chapter 1. It's between the book of Hebrews and the book of Peter. Um, in fact, if you're familiar with the book of Peter, you'll notice that James' teaching kind of has a lot of similarities with Peter's. And in fact, uh, though James doesn't explicitly mention Jesus' death, his book is the one that most closely mirrors Jesus' teaching. And so if you're familiar with the Gospels, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, if you're familiar with the teaching of those who were with Jesus, like Peter and John, you'll be familiar with James' style. He very much um, mirrors the teaching of his, well, we'll see, who Jesus is to him in just a second. We're going to pray and then jump in at verse 1, all right? Let's bow our heads. Our Father, we just submit before your word this morning. We thank you for the book of James. It is not a gospel of straw. It is rich, and it has much to say to us. 
So I pray that you would use this ancient wisdom now to speak into our contemporary culture, speak into our lives, the lives of these brothers and sisters in Caroline Springs in 2017. We trust that you will do this by the power of your spirit. Please change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to start at verse number one. And so if you want to open that up, we'll read it together. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Let me use this verse just to give us a little introduction to the book. Very brief. You can read more plenty online for you to um, read, or if you've got a study Bible, they should have some intro notes there for you. But the first thing we need to know is the author and the audience, right? Very important if we're going to understand the book. We need to see it in context. So the author and the audience, he kind of gives us that in the first verse. Um, The author is James, and uh, we are 99.5% confident that this is written by James, the brother of Jesus. So you know that Jesus had brothers and sisters uh, born after him to Mary and Joseph, and one of his brothers was James. You can see it in Mark chapter 6. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. The people of Jesus' day, when he arrives on the scene and starts tearing up the fabric of the universe are offended by him because he is just that carpenter's son. He's just James' big brother. He's Joseph's big brother. He's Judas's big brother. He's Simon's and his sister's. He's just one of that rat pack that we see running around the carpenter's shop. They take offense at him. And so James gets identified there as Jesus' brother, but though he's grown up with Jesus, he's not one to kind of jump on the bandwagon very early on. In fact, he plainly disbelieved in Jesus' claims. It's like, you know, if your big brother starts saying he's God, it's probably going to take you a little while to get on board with that. Probably going to be a little bit cynical about the truth of that claim. And so in Mark chapter 3, this is what we read. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. That's what Jesus' family thought about him, about his ministry, about his miracles. He's lost it. And James was one of those who thought that Jesus had cracked somewhere along the line. In John chapter 7, We read this as well. When the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers, James included, said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. They didn't believe in him. They kind of give him advice about, you know, giving him some PR advice. Like, if you want to be a big star, if you want to be on the front page, if you want to be most downloaded on iTunes, then here's what you should do. Get out. Right? They're giving him PR advice, but they don't believe in him. They think it's just a, it's all a bit of a joke. 
And so James is there throughout Jesus' ministry and he's there disbelieving in who Jesus is revealing himself to be. That is until the resurrection. So after Jesus dies and then is raised again, if your big brother has been saying these things about himself and then he's dead and then he's alive again, you start to believe the things that he said, even if you're his little brother, right? It's pretty convincing stuff. And so 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul's talking about what happened after the resurrection, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have died, some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. He appears to James. In fact, he appears to James before he appears to the other apostles. Like, as one of three brothers, I kind of like to think that he did that because he's like, see? <laughs> Told you. And so after the resurrection, after Jesus appears to James, he becomes a believer, and not just a believer, but he goes on to be the Bishop of Jerusalem. The Bishop of Jerusalem, the first church in Jerusalem. And we've just been through the book of Acts, and we met James along the way, on the way right? Various points when um, Paul particularly is interacting with the Jerusalem church, there's James overseeing things at at the church. And so, uh, particularly when there was big controversy about how the law interacts with grace, how the new covenant interacts with the old covenant, there you had James trying to sort this out. So, when they had the Jerusalem council to figure some of these big questions out, it was James that was overseeing and presiding at the council. And then we read in Acts chapter, I think it was 21, It says, uh, Luke recording, the next day Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And they go on and then it's James who says, here's what we should do. Here's what the church universal should do in this case. That's the kind of authority that he has in the first century as as a bishop in the Jerusalem church. And so he goes from being someone who absolutely thinks Jesus is crazy to a bishop in his church. And it's awesome, the fact that as he introduces this letter, he says, James, what? A brother of Jesus? That would be a good thing to, to do, right? If you, if you just want to PR spin this a little bit better, if you're writing a letter trying to convince people to do things, and which includes more imperatives, commands, than any other letter in the New Testament, a good thing to do, James, thought you were so PR savvy with Jesus. Well, a good thing to do would be to say, James, Jesus' brother, for gosh sakes, right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't name himself as Jesus' brother. He names himself as a what? servant. He understands that though he was Jesus' brother on earth, he is now Jesus' servant because Jesus is Lord. And you can imagine even as he writes a servant of God, he imagines and recalls that time when Jesus appears to him as the risen Lord, King and Christ. So he's James. He's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's writing, his audience is the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Who are the 12 tribes? Well, those of you who know your Old Testament will know that there were 12 tribes of Israel 
And so he's not addressing the 12 tribes of Israel, he's addressing the new Jerusalem, the new Israel, the church. So why did Jesus choose 12 disciples? It was to show that the new covenant ushered in a new Israel, which was those who had been saved by grace, the church of Jesus. And so it is with James. He wants to say, this letter is for the whole church. This letter is to the new Israel. This letter is to God's people scattered, dispersed among the nations. So it's a general letter. It's not the letter to the Galatians. It's the letter to Christians. Christians everywhere. And that's why it's so general. That's why he's not addressing specific issues in the church. He wants everyone for all time to be able to read this and say, this is for me. And that's what I'm praying will be the case for us as we go through this this letter together. This is a letter by James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, even to Caroline Springs. And the style that he's written this in, author, audience, style, it's the style of a letter, it's an epistle, it's a letter written, but it's written generally to Christians everywhere, and the style is of this kind of wisdom literature. This is common in the Hebrew culture at the time, wisdom literature, you'll find it in your Bible as well. Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, this, this wisdom literature that, um, that seeks to communicate timeless truths and educate us so that we would live wisely in the world. And so he says in verse 5 of chapter 1, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. It will be given to you. He says, as you read this book, right, this is right at the top, at the top of the book, at the top of the letter, as you read this book, know that I want you to grow in wisdom, and the way to grow in wisdom is to ask God for wisdom. If you want to be wise, ask God. Why? Because he gives generously to all without reproach. That is, he gives to all kinds of people, doesn't matter if you're educated or uneducated, female, male, young, old. He gives to all generously and without reproach. That means he doesn't want us to think that we can't approach him. He doesn't want us to think that if we ask him for wisdom, he'll say, oh, I can't be bothered with you. No, God is flinging wide the doors of wisdom and asking us to receive it from him. We're going to talk a lot about wisdom in this book because... That's really the aim of James in this book, is that we would grow in wisdom. So let me give you a definition of wisdom. Wisdom throughout the scriptures, right? Irrespective of Old Testament, New Testament, throughout the scriptures, wisdom is a God-given and God-centered discernment regarding the practical issues of life. Wisdom comes from prayer for God's help. In response, God gives generously and without reproach. So if you're asking God for wisdom, you know it's going to look like this. It's going to be God-given and God-centered. I think many of us make the error sometimes of wanting wisdom that is me-centered, right? No, the the wisdom that God gives is God-centered, which is the best thing that we could receive. So have that in mind as we go through this book. Be asking God for wisdom, the wisdom that James wants us to receive. 
as we read it. All right, let's keep going. In verse 2 to 4, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So he says, the goal of your life as a Christian is perseverance in faith. You want to come to your last breath having persevered in faith in the Lord Jesus. Because perseverance gives way to glory, to eternity, right? And so as a Christian, that's your big goal. You might have other goals, life goals, work goals, family goals, but your big picture goal is perseverance. In Reformed theology, we have this beautiful doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. And it's the truth that everyone whom God grants salvation to will be saved. It's not once saved, always saved. Like, I put my hand up once and I got a ticket and now I'll get to heaven someday. It's not a fire insurance policy against hell. It is perseverance of the saints. That means those who are saved will daily take up their cross and follow Jesus. That's not coasting. That's constant, grinding perseverance. That's dying every day. And that beautiful doctrine, perseverance of the saints, says we will persevere in faith, those of us who have faith in the Lord Jesus. And and this, what James has just said, is that that perseverance will come about as we experience trials. Thank you, Lord, for that trial. Ah, made it. All right. Still a Christian. All right. He says, "What? God will persevere you. God will persevere you into eternity. How will he do it? He will do it by his means. What are his means? Trials. Sufferings. Jesus said, through many trials, you will enter the kingdom of God. Don't you wish it was something else? Like chocolate? How will God persevere us into heaven? Through chocolate. Thanks be to God. Nope, not chocolate. Trials. Trials are that means that will refine us that will shape us, that will persevere us to the end. James' buddy, Peter, he talks a whole lot about this. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, this is what he says, In this you rejoice, that is, in these sufferings, in these trials, in this persecution, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Just stop there for a sec. If necessary, you have been grieved. Why is it necessary? To persevere us. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
when Jesus appears and calls us home, why are we going to respond with praise and glory and honor? Because we have persevered in faith. Why have we persevered in faith? Because we have been tested. We've been put under trial. We've suffered and been persecuted. That's the unanimous verdict of the New Testament. You can't get away from it. If you think becoming a Christian is about becoming comfortable, you, you, you got the wrong religion. Like, go, you need to go to Oprah or some other religion. Like an engineered religion made up by men that is comforting. This is comforting, but it's comforting because it's true. He says, gold, when you put it under fire, all the crap rises to the top. You scrape that stuff off and you've got pure gold. That's what faith is like under trial, under fire. And he says in chapter 4 as well, makes it even more emphatic. Beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when glory or when his glory is revealed. And verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Why, why is it, how is it possible to live the rest of your life persevering under trials? It's possible precisely because it's God's will. If, the, if your trials were just coming at you because the Satan was slinging stuff at you, and you know, who then could persevere? We couldn't persevere. But if it's God who is bringing those trials to you as a loving father to persevere you in your faith, then we can do that. Then we can live this life. Then we can persevere. Our trials, our sufferings have been measured out to the gram by a loving Father who wants to see us persevere in faith. That's why James can say, consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy. You will only consider trials and sufferings as pure joy if your ultimate goal is glory and not comfort. If your ultimate goal is comfort, right, just cushy life, you are not going to consider it pure joy when you face sufferings. They're going to become your biggest enemy. But if your greatest and highest calling is glory, then you can consider those sufferings pure joy because you know that they're just the, the pathway to glory. This is testing me to even say this because uh, because uh, last night we just had an average night with our boy Judah, ninety minutes sleep thereabouts. He's the one nodding off in the second row. My wife's the one with serious amounts of baggage under her eyes. I'm doing okay because. She spared me. But that's you know, three and a half years without a full night's sleep. Now, 
if comfort is our highest goal and priority, then we're starting to fall apart, right? We're shaking our fists at God and saying, what the hell? And I've done that. But when I am shaped by this understanding of how God uses trials to shape us and to cleanse us and to purify us and to persevere us, then if glory is my highest goal, this is just par for the course. This is just part of the training regime. Every broken night's sleep is fitting me out for heaven. And you just insert your own sufferings. Some of you are suffering far greater things than broken sleep. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Now he says, in the midst of a world characterized by trials and suffering, two of the greatest trials that you can face, according to James, and he will expand this throughout the rest of his book, two of the greatest trials you can face is either having poverty or riches. Poverty and riches are two of the greatest trials you can face in this life. He says, verse 9 to 11, believers in humble circumstances, that is, poor, poverty-stricken believers, ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. He'll expand on this and we'll see this throughout. He has a lot to say about poor Christians and rich Christians. And for James, both of those extremes are part of the trials that we have to go through in this life. It's a trial to be poor because you are oppressed by the rich. This is a reality in the first century and it's a reality today. If you're poor, you'll be oppressed by those who are rich. James knew this very well. Remember, we just had our series on the gospel and giving and we kept talking about the collection was taken up for who? The poverty-stricken Jerusalem Christians. Who's their pastor? James. He knows what it is to be a poor Christian. He knows what it is to struggle and he sees it as a trial that poor Christians have to persevere in if they're going to inherit eternal life. But so with the rich, he's just like his brother Jesus. He sees the, the, the snare that lays at the feet of the rich. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 19, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So you just need to think, am I rich? Everyone in this room, filthy rich. So therefore, it is hard for me to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is going to be hard for any of us to persevere in faith because of our riches. That's how, that's how dangerous it is to be rich. It's harder for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. He's not speaking metaphorically. He means literally needle, camel. Now with God, all things are possible. Praise God for that. 
But the trial that you and I will face, one of our greatest trials, is not sleepless kids or cancer or war or famine. It is riches. Because riches are seductive and because you can't serve two masters. But, he says, whether you have the trial of poverty or the trial of riches, verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres or who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. To those who love him more than comfort. Who love him more than riches. Who love him. That's the promise Steadfastness, perseverance, under trial results in the crown of life, eternal life. That's God's promise to us. So in the midst of these trials, the fact is whether we've got the trial of poverty or the trial of riches or some other kind of trial, the trial of sleeplessness or the trial of cancer or the trial, whatever, you fill in the blanks in the midst of a life that is laced with trials in this veil of tears, we will be vulnerable to temptations. And that's where he goes next. Verse 13 to 14, he says, when tempted, not if you're tempted, but when tempted, right? When tempted in the next five minutes, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. I've got the ESV up here because I think it's better. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. James is using one of his images that he loves to use. Uh, imagery in general, and here he's, he's using the image of a, a fisherman with a lure, right? He says, temptation comes upon us always. It's always going to come upon us. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his desire. So you've got desires. You've got desires within you, some for good, some for evil. And those desires have the power to lure you. Those same desires that will, if you pursue them indefinitely, land you condemned, are desires that you are prone to follow. And it's like a little fishing lure, right? It looks delightful. It's so shiny. Right? Just think about the temptation that you keep struggling with. Not your wife. Right? Your temptation. What's the temptation? What is it? It keeps getting you. Right? That temptation, when you're in the heat of the moment, looks delightful, shiny, edible, delicious. And for some reason, though we have been hooked over and over again, we forget the massive, sharp hook that's attached to it. And so James says, when we're lured, when we follow those desires, it's then when we bite down on them that we're hooked. 
I've spent a lot of my life fishing. I really enjoy fishing. And I had a good friend who died too young, but he was an older guy, um, to me at least, I guess he was 50. He was a, a Scottish guy, a Scotsman. And he taught me to fly fish like a true Scotsman. He said, you fish like an Englishman. I need to teach you how to fish like a Scotsman. And, um, and so he taught me how to fly fish. And uh, I remember we used to go up to the Goulburn River. And in the Goulburn River, they've gotten rid of them all now because they're kind of a pest. But there used to be these huge willow trees, massive big willow trees. And the willow trees were so big that they would um, change the course of the river. They would, you know, eddies and pools would gather behind these trees and there used to be this one place in the river that had this one brown trout in it, big fat brown trout and every time we walked past it, it was there and every time we tried to catch it, it would laugh at us, just laugh until one occasion where we had been going at it for a little while, dropping different flies in, different colours, trying to match what was on the surface, if you don't understand fishing, just skip all this. And then it wasn't me, but it was him who put the right fly in front of it at the right time, and he grabbed it. And why? Why would he laugh at us as different lures go by and then grab the one that was his end, his doom, his death? It's because he's stupid, and so are we. When it comes to these lures, these desires that lure us, We're dumb. We really are the sheep that the Bible tells us we are, to switch the metaphor. And James switches the metaphor as well, okay? So he's talked about how we're like fish that get lured. And then he says, he introduces a a different image, and it's the image of giving birth. He says uh, in, where am I? What are we up to? Verse 15. Yep. He says, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It's like grandpa, dad, and son. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When you bite down on the lure, you sin. And sin, when it's full grown, if you give it the opportunity, if you give it air and you give it water and you give it food and you allow it to grow without repentance, it gives birth to death. Not just regret, death. The wages for sin is death. So we go from chasing pretty lures to ending up in the fry pan. The squeeze of lemon. What James is saying here, his argument is in the midst of trials, in this, this, this life, in this world, in this pond that we live in, there are going to be lures cast in constantly. Right? We are big, fat fish, and the enemy wants to catch us. Our flesh wants to catch us. The world wants to catch us. We live in this pond. The lures are going to be cast. And he says, in that world, God is not to be blamed for your indiscretions. God's not tempted and he doesn't tempt. He's not casting any lures at you. He's measuring out trials to persevere you. He's measuring out trials so you won't bite on the lure of death. 
And he says, it is up to us how we deal with those things. If we bite on the lure, it gives birth to sin. And if we allow the sin to take root, it will grow and give birth to death. Martin Luther said it this way. You cannot keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. That's what temptations are like. Can you stop temptation from coming to you? Can you stop the birds flying over your head? Can you stop the lures being flung into the pond? No, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. The person who blames God for his sin and temptation is the person who has seen the birds fly over and then done nothing as they make a nice big nest. We are accountable, friends. We're accountable for how we respond to temptation, both to trial and to temptation. So then he asks, how do we persevere in the midst of this, this life? In the midst of a life characterized by trials and temptations, how are we going to persevere? How are we going to not end up in the pan? How are we going to live the life that God has called us to live from now into eternity? That's the view he has. That's the view you ought to have of your life. It's not zero to 88. It's zero to eternity. How are you going to persevere for this heartbeat of a life in the midst of trials and temptations? This is how we don't do it. Verse 19 to 20. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. In other words, you can't just force it. Just trying harder isn't the answer. Just trying harder isn't how you persevere in faith. Human anger doesn't produce God's righteousness. It's a, it's, he's written up like this. Man's anger does not equal God's righteousness. I had to learn this the hard way because I used to have a ministry to men, boys, young adults, boys who went to university. Right? That was my last church. I had about 50 of them. And they kept biting the friggin' lures all of the time. And my response to them biting down on the lures was to yell. To yell louder and tell them to try harder. And you know what that does? Gets results. It does. It gets results. We had guys smashing their computers because they couldn't stop looking at porn, right? It was like, results! Insofar as behavior was changed for a short time. So yelling at people will get people to change their behavior for a time. But if you're talking about perseverance, lifelong perseverance, you're going to need to do more than yell. Right, parents, amen? If your hope is to wrangle your children into being grown, mature contributors to civilization by yelling louder and telling them to try harder, you you really should give up now 
and maybe give them up. I'm not saying you can't yell at your kids. I'm not saying you can't discipline your kids. You better be disciplining them. I am saying that the product that you want, which is a child who has grown into maturity and wisdom, is not found, is not produced by yelling harder, yelling louder to try harder. We've seen wisdom, the wisdom that we want them to have, the wisdom that God wants us to have, comes from God. Anger doesn't produce the righteousness of God. God produces the righteousness of God. Anger doesn't produce the wisdom of God. God produces the wisdom of God. And so he says, in, we'll go back to verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, that's all of us, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. How do you live wisely in the midst of trials and temptations so that you will persevere into eternity, you ask God for wisdom. And he gives it. It's like, there's no, there's no little asterisk. Terms and conditions. No, he gives generously without reproach. He gives generously. So we need to ask him for it. And then verse 21 gives us the other part of it. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Oh my Lord, what did he just say? Prayer and Bible. He just said the answer is prayer and Bible. That thing that you've been told since you became a Christian, he agrees with that. Prayer and the word. If you lack wisdom, but you want wisdom because you want to persevere in the midst of trials and temptations, pray and ask God for it and receive his word, the word which can save you, the word which is planted in you. Accept it humbly as the authoritative word which can shape you for eternity. Because we lack wisdom, we need to pray and ask God for it. We need to read his word and receive it. But there's more. It's not just prayer and Bible. Don't stop there. Don't think if I've ticked prayer and I've ticked Bible, then I'm sorted. It's not just prayer and Bible. And this opens up next week's chapter, chapter 2, and really the rest of James. It explains why in our graphic we've got faith as the root of the plant and works as the fruit of the plant, right? This is why he says, by all means pray, by all means read your Bible, but, verse 22... Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, that is the gospel, and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, 
They will be blessed in what they do. They will persevere in this life of trials and temptations. Man, that's pretty big application for people who are hearing the word right now, huh? He's saying, if you come and sit down and listen and go away and forget, then you may as well have looked in a mirror and walk away and forget what you look like. It's that useless. I'm not saying you have to remember every word of every sermon. It's not that. He's saying forgetfulness is characterized by inaction. You know that you have received the implanted word that can save you if you do something with it. If the words are matched with works. For James, words without works are nothing. In fact, he says, faith without works is dead. Chapter 2, come back for more encouragement. Another way of saying it is those who consider themselves religious, verse 26, and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Pretty convicting for me. He expands that mightily in chapter 3. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans, and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's opening up the rest of our series, really, and I've run out of time to talk any further, but if you want to know what the rest of the book of James is about, read that last few verses. He's going to come after us. He's going to come after us and our propensity to listen and not act. So I'm going to pray for us now. I'm going to pray for the next four weeks coming that God would save us from dead religion. Let's pray. Our Father, we have no, no hope without you. We really are dumb fish in a pond without you. But you want us to grow in wisdom so that we might persevere through trials and temptations. And you want us to grow in wisdom as we ask you for it. You want to pour out into each one of us the glorious gift of wisdom to live well in this world. And you want us to receive wisdom as we humbly accept the implanted word. So we know that according to Jesus, Satan is like a little irritating bird who wants to pick away the implanted word. And so we ask now, Lord, that you would overcome him, that you would expel him from our midst, that none of this word that has been implanted by your spirit would be pecked out, and that none of it would be choked by the weeds of this life, the pursuit of riches and the cares of this world. Please save us from leaving this place, growing up fast, but without any soil, without any depth. Please, Lord, through this series, through our living and interacting with one another, through our prayers and our reading, Lord, please grow us up to be plants, healthy plants that bring forth much fruit, fruit that would last. We pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen.